This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a Reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode 14. We're discussing the incoherence of political representation. I'm Carrie Baldwin here with Gregory Baus. We're interviewing Dr. Jared Casey about his article, The Indefensibility of Political Representation. We link to the article in the show notes, along with an audio presentation given in 2009 entitled, Which is to be Master? In this episode, Dr. Casey introduces himself and recounts how he became a libertarian anarchist. In reference to his article, he talks about the idea of legitimate command and various options that might justify the state's supposed authority. Then he summarizes some of his examination of political representation from his article. He also talks about what real democracy is like and closes with a reflection on caring for the poor in a free society. Dr. Casey is philosophy professor emeritus of University College Dublin. He is author of numerous books and articles, several of which we'll link to in the show notes. And we've already discussed an article by Dr. Casey in episode seven on the topic of conservatism. So be sure to check out that later if you missed it. Dr. Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor and pleasure to be able to speak with you. Before we talk about the ideas you present in this article, would you tell us or tell our audience something about yourself, something about your background, personal life, if you like, your academic career, and how you became a libertarian anarchist? So my academic career, I hated school. <laughs> and when I left, I swore I'd never go to another educational establishment again. So there's a deep irony in this that I should end up as a professor. But in any event, I worked... I worked as a musician for some years, and then I lived in the Netherlands for a while. And while I was there, I worked actually in the beer factory, which is very interesting because I don't drink, and I never have. And when I used to come home from work, I sort of radiated about 15 feet all around me, a sort of smell of beer. And I could see people thinking, how can that man walk? But anyway, while I was working in the beer factory, because it was cold and chilled and you were under heavy concrete and you didn't have any listening, you couldn't, no listening devices. And by and large, the work I was doing involved me being on my own for most of the day. I started the thinking, which is always dangerous. And I came up with the kind of questions like, is this it? Am I going to be condemned to do this the rest of my life? Is there any meaning? Does it make any difference what you do with your life? And all those kind of questions again. And I thought, look, there are really only two ways to deal with these kind of questions. One is to get drunk and stay drunk or take drugs, or get distracted. You know what I mean? Just like, yeah. don't think about them. Do something else, but for goodness sake, don't think about them. Or face up to them. So I went home, I saved my money, and I went to university, and I had a wonderful time. I was one of those nerds who would be sitting in the kitchen in a house where a party was going on with four or five other nerves arguing about communism and political matters while everybody else was dancing and drinking. I'm telling you, it was hideous. Anyway, there we go. I loved it. It was great. And when I finished, I was having so much fun, I didn't even really think about my degree. I was kind of surprised when they gave me one. But my tutors 
encouraged me to do postgraduate stuff. So I applied to various universities and Notre Dame was the first one back. It's kind of ironic because, of course, I wasn't a Christian at the time. In fact, I was more or less a card-carrying atheist. So I found myself there. I got married. Uh, we had to do that because there's no way my significant other could come with me if I was if, she, if we were married. So I ended up in Notre Dame. And then, so I had a strange experience there because, see, I thought religious believers were stupid. <laughs> there were about 40 graduate students in residence. And most of them were actually believing and practicing Christians. Uh, at a bewildering variety, to me especially, like Wesleyan Methodist and Southern Baptist and Dutch Reformed and things I never even heard of. So their favorite occupation when they weren't working, which is which was a significant part of the time they'd be there, was to argue about finer points of Christian doctrine. And I got kind of involved in this, and that was kind of fun. And that eventually led to me returning uh, to my faith in 1981, more or less, before I finished my degree. Anyway, that's the kind of academic side. I took my degree, I got a job teaching at the Catholic University of America. And then after some years there, a job opened up in Ireland and I applied and was accepted and took it and I've been here ever since. Being a libertarian, however, is slightly different because, so that, that's the story of my first conversion, I suppose, a reconversion. The second one was, I'm now at middle age and I'm, I suppose if you were to describe me, I would describe myself as a sort of unreflective, conservative, mm-hmm. kind of small c. There's really no conservative party in Ireland, so there's nothing for me to gravitate towards, but that's probably what I was. But I always had, I had interests in odd things. And one of the things I found really odd was the notion of money. So I thought it was very strange that I could take a probably diseased, dirty piece of paper into a store. They would give me goods and services for it. And I thought, well, you know, I can make better looking pieces of paper myself, but nobody's going to give me any goods and services for those. In fact, I'm going to find myself in a strange place locked up if I do it. So what is it so special about money? So I was kind of puzzled about this. In any event, one of my colleagues went off on sabbatical for a year. And when he came back, he brought me a copy of Ludwig von Mises' Theory of Money and Credit. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not a book that I would recommend to anyone starting off in this area. I mean, this is a German book. This is serious. <laughs> my professor at UCD, my first head of school, used to say to me, Mr. Casey, he said, in a German book, you should read only the footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in a French book, you should never read the footnotes. They're really there for decoration. <laughs> I hope this isn't racist. Okay. Do I need Germans or French that are listening? But anyway, it's kind of funny. So, I mean, uh, Theory of Money and Credit is a serious book. But the point was, and I'm sure you and your listeners will have had this experience, in a sense, things speak to you really only when you have a live question. And for me, this was a live question. And so instead of being some 600-page boring treatise in economics. It was like a novel. I read it. And what got me was that the, I had to get a little bit technical for the moment, there's a notion called the a priori in philosophy, which says things that are so, but can be known as it were in advance of experience. And usually when philosophers have to give examples of this, they talk about things in logic and mathematics. But in the context of explaining what money is and what, in fact, not only what it is, but what it has to be and how it actually had to come into existence, fully convincing once you hear the story, I came across the idea, which to with the shocking idea, and this is an a priori idea, which is not logical and not mathematical, but the idea that in an uncoerced exchange, both parties benefit. 
In other words, a non-coerced exchange is positive sum, and necessarily so. Now, what that does, it doesn't tell you in what way it's positive sum, or whether the people are correct, or whether they've changed their mind afterwards. But at the point of the exchange, it's positive sum and necessarily positive sum. Now, it's probably <laughs> strange for anyone who isn't a philosopher to try and understand how exciting that necessarily was to somebody like me. Mm-hmm. It's not just a fact. It has to be the case. And so I was really shocked by this and could sort of walked around in, you know, in the days for quite a while. And of course, once I started reading that, then I read everything else by Mises, bureaucracy, human action, and all of the rest. And once you start reading Mises, you find the Mises Institute. And once you find the Mises Institute, you find Rothbard and all the gang. So for about two years, I read everything I could lay my hands on because all of these were live questions. I read it all and I read it very, very quickly. And then I think it was 2007, the Austrian Scholars Conference, as it was then called at the Mises Institute, advertised for papers. So I offered a paper and they accepted and I turned up and I gave a paper at the conference. I loved it. It was incredible to be there with all of these people. Tom Wood said to me afterwards, we said to one another, who is this guy? <laughs> because they'd come out of left field. Nobody knew anything about me. And so on. So, and that was it really. And so from then I, I started, I obviously worked on various things. And so Libertarian Anarchy came out, I think, in 2012. And I wrote that largely because it was meant to be a kind of question stopper. I had so many questions from people. And I thought, look, I'll write a book. Okay. And then if you ask me a question, I give you the book and say, read the book. And it's a short book. It's probably shorter than it was, should have been desirable to be. But it was part of a series and I was constrained by the limitations of what I could do. Anyway, and that's it really. And I've been a libertarian ever since, card carrying and all of the rest. And that's made me immensely popular, as you can imagine. Well, we've really appreciated that book. And so we'll link that in the show notes. And the article we're discussing today, you presented, I believe, in 2009 and as it's published, the article is entitled The Indefensibility of Political Representation. And so we're talking about the incoherence of this fundamental idea of political representation. In that article, you start off by considering what you call the principle of legitimate command. What seems to be at issue here is the difference, you might say, between might and right. The question of what action any person may legitimately require another to perform or refrain from, and then how use of coercion comes into that. Can you give us a basic idea of what you present here? Yes. Well, so what I do is I try to imagine a scenario uh, where you have two adult human beings. By the way, I stress adult because children are a special case and I don't want to get into that. It just complexifies things, but nonetheless. So we have two human beings who, in my example, are on a desert island and they eventually meet. Now, the question here is, it's quite possible, of course, for one to dominate the other physically if they're stronger, okay? Or the other person to dominate the first, okay? That's possible. So that's just might. That's always possible in human relations, and we've never left that behind. We see it every day in the history of the world. The question is, however, does one of these people have the right, not just the might, but the right to command another in various ways? And I say, well, yes, negatively, insofar as 
either party can demand and command the other to refrain from actions that violate the principle of non-aggression or zero aggression. That doesn't require the other party to do anything. It requires them not to do things. That's mine. So you're not allowed to hit me or you're not allowed to take my stuff and so on and so forth. Positively, is it possible for one to command the other? And the answer is, well, yes, but only as the result of a, an agreement between the two. I mean, a firm agreement, more than a promise and so on, the firm agreement where there's been an exchange and one party has received the benefit and then requires you to carry out your side of the bargain. In that case, they can command you to do something, either specific performance of what you promised or the delivery of the goods or services that you need, okay? And those are, it seems to me, the only things that one can do. What I'm ruling out here is the idea that one party can command the other arbitrarily to do something or to refrain from do something. So say, you know, you go and pick the bananas off that tree and bring them to me. Now, clearly, if you're cooperating, we can say, would you mind picking the bananas or whatever and so on. But the idea here is that if I were to resist that command, the person would then feel that they ha that their legitimate command had been disobeyed and they would have to do something about it. So I'm saying those are the only circumstances and so on. So I'm trying to make the point really, and I suppose in a long-winded way, that human beings, there is nothing about one human being vis-a-vis -vis another which gives the first the right to command the second, except in the very specific ways I've talked about. That's it, really. So that being the case, as we look around the world, we find ourselves in situations where certain groups of people claim that they have the right to tell you what to do, not just in the limited ways that I've talked about, but in quite specific ways, and that they have the right to take a portion, a quite large portion of your income and put it to whatever purposes they choose, and to tell you, for example, that you cannot uh, put certain chemicals into your body if you choose to do so. Not that I'm advocating anything, but here, but I'm making the point that they can tell you, in fact, they've come very close, as we saw recently in the COVID thing, to telling you that you must put certain things into your body. So the question is, how do we get from a situation where looking at the world where all human beings, adult human beings, are as a co-equal in that sense, and no one has the right to command another except in the very limited sense in which I talked about it, to a situation where one group of people have the right, it seems, to do this. And not only the right, but a right backed by force. And they claim the only legitimate use of force to either force you to do things or to force you not to do things. And in the end, I mean, we're talking about force which can either result in your imprisonment or an extremist in your death, right? That's quite striking. How did we get from the first situation to the second? That's my question. Yeah, I think it's really important to ask that question, what what right does the state have? Because it's often assumed by people. And so before getting into the main topic that we're going to talk about, which is representation, can you say a little bit more about the various proposals that have been given to justify a state's right to command or rule? Well, yes, we get a variety of stories. One is, I command you because I'm better than you. <laughs> or I'm smarter than you, or I'm divine or quasi-divine, and you're not. And a whole variety of these say, or I'm richer than you. <laughs> okay. So all of these have been popular options, and there, we haven't, in fact, entirely left them all 
behind either. It's quite striking how many of our so-called public representatives are significantly wealthier than the than most of the people they claim. I would suggest that in many cases what we're looking at is a kind of is a kind of oligarchy in many mm-hmm. ways and so on. And we've seen witnessed, for example, dynasties emerge where fathers, sons, mothers, daughters, and so on follow each other and so on and so forth. Which is a bit like the aristocratic principle. Um so I I am an aristocrat, you're a peasant and therefore I, you have to do what I say. And so the privilege of command passes down through the aristocracy and the peasantry have to simply do what they're told. So all of these are kind of popular options. And they still, as I say, they still persist, albeit in disguised forms today and so on. But whatever about the realities of power relations, the story we are told today is that there's really only one legitimate option. And that is what they call democracy. And you say, oh, really? What what does, because you might say, well, hang on a second, call it what you like. But if even if we call it a democracy, we still have a situation where some people get to tell us what to do and we get to have to do what they tell us, right? So that doesn't seem to have changed. So why should I buy into the democracy? And they say, aha, because in a democracy, you get to vote for people. And those people are your representatives. And because they're your representatives, they are sort of giving expression in some way to your wishes or desires or whatever it might be. And so in a sort of a slightly roundabout way, you're actually ruling yourself. So that's okay then. This leads right into the next question. Back in episode eight, where we introduced the Boiti option, as we called it, or the peaceful underthrow of the state. We briefly talked about consent of the governed. Now, you don't put representation in terms of consent here explicitly, but perhaps as part of the same unexamined idea of political representation being the means by which the governed are supposed to be governing themselves. And then you introduce the work of Hannah Pitkin in 1967. What is it that you first draw out from her work connecting the ideas of representation and democracy? Well, she, unlike many, to give her credit, understands that the notion of representation is crucial to a defense uh, of democracy. And so she tries to give an account of it. And she considers various options and finds them I think for the most part, I'm correct in saying this, I don't want to be unjust to her, unsatisfactory, and then produces her own (laughs) account, which is that the notion of representation here is systemic or something like that. It's systemic. It's the system that represents. And to which I'm going, I don't understand what that means. That doesn't make any sense to me. What I try to do is look at the notion of representation by examining basic common or garden type examples of representation and asking, is this what you have in mind? So if I am, say, a member of a local residence association and I'm a member of the committee, but for some reason, say I'm laid up in bed and I can't attend. So I ask my wife to go along to speak on my behalf and I give her, as it were, my views on the issues that are coming up on the agenda. And so she's there to represent me. And insofar as she expresses my views and 
articulate some, she's representing me. Fair enough. That's clearly understood, I think. Another thing is if you're ever unfortunate enough to be in court and you have a lawyer, your lawyer represents you. In other words, you have interests, whatever they might be, commercial or criminal, depending on which court you find yourself in. And your lawyer is employed by you to represent those interests. Okay. If he suddenly starts articulating the views of the prosecutor okay, or your rival on the other side of a civil case, you're going to say, hang on a second. What is it? What are you doing here? It's kind of strange, right? Or you might, for example, be a collector of curios and artworks, and you might want to bid at an auction, but because you're so well known, you don't want the price to be raised. So you send some completely unknown person along, but you give that person instructions. You say, you're not to pay more than $300,000 for the painting and try to get it for less if you can, and all of the rest. If that person were to bid, half a million dollars, they would have exceeded their instructions and they wouldn't be representing you. They'd be doing their own thing, as it were, right? So there's a whole bunch of ways in which we understand how representation works, right? Now, unless you are in what used to be known in Britain as a rotten borough, which means is a borough which has like one or two <laughs> voters, okay, <laughs> maybe even one, it's not possible to represent in that way. So, I mean, let's take the first past the post system that they use in the UK, because we use a different system here. Let's suppose you have a constituency with 80,000 voters and you get 40,001 votes. So that means 39,999 people haven't voted for you. How do you represent them? In fact, if you think about it, how could you possibly represent the interests of 80,000 people? I mean, Unless it's a very peculiar question, it's highly unlikely that you're ever going to get 80,000 people to agree on anything. In fact, as we all know, once a committee gets above seven or eight, it's almost impossible even to get consensus with seven, eight, 10, or 12 people, let alone that. So the point is that if you're talking about a notion of agency, a sort of representation as agency here, it's not really possible. And this, by the way, doesn't attribute any malice to your would-be representative, it's not because they're trying not to do it. It's just not possible for anyone to do it. However well they try to do it, it's simply not possible. And so I don't understand what that means. How does that person represent? And in fact, there is a famous, a very famous passage from the philosopher Edmund Burke, who happened to be Irish, by the way, if I'd leave that to one side, where he had been in touch with his electors in the British city of Bristol. And he explicitly says to them that when you elect your MP, the MP is not there to represent your interests as an agent, to give effect to your wishes or desires, even if they could be articulated in some uniform way. In fact, he is a member of a deliberative body, and his job is to think about what is good for everyone in the nation or the whole body. So he basically says, in fact, that even if you had particular interests, and those particular interests were, in my estimation, and I was your MP, were against this common good, I would be obliged to vote against your interests. So he explicitly rejects the whole notion of politicians, MPs, members of parliament, as being agents or in that sense, which is quite striking. Now, what I find very interesting is that during elections, by the way, when people come looking for your vote, 
They never tell you this. It's like they normally say, oh, I can do this and so on. And this is my platform and I'm going to lower taxes or I'm going to raise taxes or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. So they say, I have a platform and and so on. But there are a number of curious things about this. One is they're not in any way obliged to work towards that platform, even if elected, which is quite striking. So unlike somebody with whom you contract for a good or a service, okay, and if he fails to provide it, you can take action. With your politician, you can't sue somebody on their uh, failure to attempt or even to trying to attempt to bring about a their political platform. It's quite strange. And in fact, uh, the other quote I have, which is from Rousseau, who lived in England for a while, and he said, the people of England regards itself as free, but it's grossly mistaken. It is free only during the election of members of parliament. As soon as they're elected, slavery overtakes it, and it is nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's largely correct, but I think it understates the problem. In fact, they're not even free during the elections. <laughs> okay. But it's certainly true that once your MPs or your members of parliament or your congressmen or whatever senators are elected, they can do more or less whatever it is that they want to do. How is this representation? I don't understand. And remember, the important here, just to remind your listeners, democracy is justified because it's supposed to be representative. So it's not representative. Democracy, which seemed like a shining star compared to oligarchies and rules by kings and people who think they're divine and so on, now suddenly has a little, well, quite a lot of its luster removed. Yeah, I'm reminded of and one example, I used to do some very local political activism, and I helped a friend of mine get elected to the city council. And it was all from a libertarian perspective. We ran a libertarian campaign, but when she, once she got in there, she learned that the real people who run the show were the city administrators who were unelected. And so <laughs> even though she wanted to make the changes, she wanted to governed based on these libertarian principles, her hands were tied. And yet we still have, and I would point that out to numerous people once I'd figured that out, but we still have this idea that the only way to solve our problems with government is to elect the right people because then they'll be representing the right ideas. But it seems like a catch-22 either way. Indeed it is. I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with the old BBC series called Yes, Minister? Mm, I haven't heard of it, no. Yeah, and there's a follow-up series called Yes, Prime Minister. I think it's probably one of the greatest works of political analysis ever. It's also hysterically funny. So if you can find it on YouTube, uh, you should probably be able to find some episodes. But it really uh, involves the tension between a newly elected uh, MP in the UK who becomes a minister and his part, his chief secretary in the department, the head of the administration, and the struggle that they have between them, where by and large the civil servant wins almost all of the time. Okay, <laughs> this is the take your point. Okay, I can give you lots of examples. So, for example, in our local council here, we have a county manager, and the county manager is a paid position, very very highly paid, and then we have councillors. And the councillors are elected. But it's kind of curious that, by and large, whatever the county manager wants to do gets done. It's only in very rare cases 
that opposition to his plans can actually bring about any change. Furthermore, in any body, if you're, say, one of 40, your chances of being able to determine, let's say you're a member of a group, so a, a party of some kind, your ability to get it to follow your line is remarkably slim. As it turns out, I mean, if I could take by our own parliament here in Ireland, we have something like, I can't remember, it's 140, 160 TDs, that's our, our MPs are called. But in reality, you have a cabinet of 12 or 16. And among in the cabinet, the prime minister, the minister for finance, and maybe one or two others are the ones who really make all the decisions. The rest are just voting fodder. So, I mean, you might think, you might be one of these people who thinks, oh, I'm going to get, I'm going to do something. I'm going to get myself elected. And you arrive all fresh and full of energy as a TD. And you discover, first of all, you don't get any speaking time <laughs> okay, because it's all raised in this way. And because you're solo. And so everything is sort of sewn up. You haven't got a chance to do anything. There's no way. So what are you doing? Well, all you're doing there is drawing a large salary at the public expense and living in the capital city and turning up to one of the more exclusive clubs. That's turned as well. So in reality, but to say this is true, it's true in the UK. And I hate to say it's true in the USA as well. Yeah. In other words, all of the power resides primarily in probably, I don't know, unless you have the president, speaker of the house and leader of the Senate, and one or two, maybe uh, chairs of the more important committees. And that's mm -hmm. probably pretty much it. They get to decide pretty much everything. That's how your democracy works. So it's not as though the idea of representation, generally speaking, is incoherent. There are plenty of examples where representation might take place, that it has some coherent meaning. However, in the political arena, we run into this problem of actually specifying a coherent idea of what it could mean for someone to represent a constituency. In contrast to this, Dr. Casey, would you tell us something about how an actual democratic form of government operated? So everybody knows, I think, that we get the idea of democracy from the Greeks and from Athens. Now, a number of very interesting things about Athens. First of all, we have to realize just how small it is by comparison with any modern state. It's tiny. It was huge by Greek standards because there were about 100 polis, that is to say 100 city-states, some of them really, really tiny. And Athens was really, really large by comparison, but still very small. But what was interesting was that in their democracy, all, almost all of the offices, political offices, were filled by what is called sortition. Now, there are exceptions to this. The ambassadors weren't, and the generals, the strategoi. Okay, of which there were 10. But every other political office was filled literally by putting people's names into a hat and pulling them out. Wow. Now, he would go, what? This is insane. This is crazy. Who knows what kind of nutcase you're going to get? Well, not everybody allowed their name to go into the hat for a start. And secondly, all of these people held office for one year, after which there was a minute examination of their performance. In particular, their handling of any money, right? Mm. So you had to be extremely careful. And the idea was anyone 
any, but it was obviously, okay, so this is Greece and area. So it's any man, adult male, okay, who is a citizen. So non-citizens didn't count. Medics, for example, didn't count. So any adult male citizen should be able to carry out the functions required to make the city work. Right. And the idea was it's almost like a corporation. It's almost like, again, if I can come back to my example of a um, residence association, you have a committee and those it's made up of people who live there and they have interests in common and they serve for a time and they do their bit, as it were, as a service. And then they leave and other people come in and carry on. And that's how it's done. So that's how Athens actually worked. It's quite strange. Now, we actually have in the common law systems that we inhabit a sortition system in certain areas. I'm sure you can think of it, where that might be. It's in the law and it's in the juries. So if you are up on a criminal charge <clears throat> that was sufficiently serious, then you're entitled to a jury trial. And notice it's a trial, uh, the jury of your peers. So it's meant to be a representative sample of people chosen at random. Interestingly enough, not specialists in the law, but people chosen at random to deliberate on the fundamental question before them, which is, are you guilty or not guilty? Hmm. Now, the deliberative bodies in Athens, there were two different kinds. There was a kind of a, an executive council, which kind of looked after things from day to day. And then there was a larger gathering where there were a significant number of people, something like 600 at any given stage, who were sort of elected for a time. And they got to kind of, they had a question put to them and the answer was basically yes or no. Now, that's how democracy worked in Athens. I'm not saying it's perfect, okay? okay. But I'm saying it's, uh, this is what a real democracy could look like because the idea was, as Aristotle said, in a democracy, you become ruler and ruled in turn. Now, compare that with the standard model that we have in our so-called Western democracies, where the rulers, while they change, they are a certain class. In other words, it, there's an amazing degree of continuity there, for example. So they don't just serve for one year, they serve for two years, and then another two years, and another two years, or four, 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 and four. And remember, by the way, it wasn't until Roosevelt that you were limited to two terms in your presidency, mm -hmm. right? There's no reason why, in principle, you couldn't have gone on for 20 years in your presidency, right? So the idea, somebody had the idea here, I don't know where they got it from, that it might be a good idea to have term limits. <laughs> to make sure you didn't have this kind of dynasty, I would say, well, go ahead and do the same for your congressmen and your senators as well. Right. So there are people who have worked, I don't know if I have it here, there are people who have worked on this idea of sortition as a way of improving the situation in which we live. In fact, there's a wonderful book by a man with a Dutch name, I think it's Van, Van Raybroek, called Against Elections. And he makes the, what, uh, the claim, which would be initially startling, that elections, in fact, have traditionally been conceived of as anti-democratic. Hmm. In fact, elections were a way of ensuring that effectively a sort of quasi-aristocracy continued in power. And I ask, say, look around at your political systems and ask yourselves if that isn't, in effect, what you've got. So whereas most people think democracy, elections, same thing, gay, in other words, you can't have a democracy without elections, you've got elections, you've got a democracy. The ancient Greeks would have said no. In fact, that whole idea is really, really bad. And that what you need is effectively like a jury system for how you would regulate your affairs. Now, there are different models and very interesting suggestions. One is that any group or people 
would be in a position to make proposals for law changes and that a jury, effectively, would be constituted in much the same way as a criminal-style jury to consider that question. And it would be put to them and they would say yes or no. And then once that answer had been given, they would be dissolved. And the next time a question, you would have to obviously meet some minimum standard, right? But once a question had some major you know, support, more or less like a Swiss referendum, it could be put to another quote jury, right? Which would be constructed by sortition. There are some very ingenious ways. And the whole, this whole idea that we have, which is really bizarre that democracy is great, it's wonderful. I mean, it's what we need and what we need to spread the gospel of around the world. And I'm thinking, no, it's not great. Look around okay. you and ask yourself, is this the best we can do? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to be even more depressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting that you bring up juries because the way juries work in America now, unless you are already informed about how the jury is supposed to work, the courts really try to curb your power as a juror and conveniently leave out information about, like, for example, the concept of jury nullification. Oh, yes. So if you're not even aware of those things, then the system, right, the system of democracy will shut down your power as a, as a jury as well. Mm-hmm. That's so true. That is so true. Dr. Casey, in light of the incoherence of political representation that you present in your article, political representations indefensibility and the fact that it's really unsalvageable. In closing, would you offer some reflections on what working towards stateless or more libertarian civil governance, a more just and free society might involve? So my attitude towards change, to moving towards a libertarian society is, sorry, there are two approaches that I call the button pushing approach says, if we had a button and we could do it instantly, we should push the button, right? And I'm not in favor of that. And the reason for it is because I think there are two principles we need to bear in mind. One is we should change away from what we've got as quickly as possible. But we should also do it with as little destruction as possible. And if you push that button, you're going to end up literally in anarchy in the bad sense of the term. Mm -hmm. So clearly the two are crossing each other. They're orthogonal. And I mean, you could you, you could take as little destruction as possible and therefore it'll be like 49 million years before anything happens. And as quickly as possible means we do it now and then the whole building falls down. But if you think about the way in which the state is constructed and the way its interests have expanded, this is something that's taken place over two or 300 years. And I think we need to deconstruct it in reverse order. Now that brings me to the interesting point that when you got rid of the state as employer, when you got rid of the state as the maker of laws, when you got rid of the state as the provider of health, education, and welfare, okay, you're still left with the basic problem of law and order and justice. So the interesting question for libertarians is, how is law and order and justice to be provided in a libertarian society? Now, I think that's the intellectually most important question, and therefore you have minarchists on the one side who think, well, we need a minimal state, and people like me who are anarchists. But I have found in practice that the question that bothers most people isn't that. The question is, what will happen to the poor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, this is going to shock you, I, I have a paper with the title, Let the Poor Starve. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is meant, as it were, obviously to address, because that's the assumption that your questioner has, that libertarians are hard-hearted, miserable, uncharitable, unforgiving, let the devil take the hindmost kind of people, let the poor star. And so I, that's how I titled my paper. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, because here we have a classic case of the Orwellian memory hole. Mm-hmm. Let me take the UK as an example here. In, in the early 20th century, they introduced the Insurance Act, which provided a certain kind of minimum amount of social welfare for citizens of the UK or um, so on. Of the 12 million citizens who were covered by that act, 8 million were already covered by friendly societies. You go, what? What's a friendly society? Mm-hmm. And here, you go, hang on a second. Friendly societies were these voluntary groupings of people which provided health, education, welfare, job seekers allowance, sickness, hospitals, doctors for their members. And in some cases, not only for their members. In fact, there were so many of them with so many members, both in the UK and in the United States, that in the UK, Ernest Bevan, after the war, when they were setting up the what is effectively the British welfare state, wanted to incorporate them into mm-hmm. so on. So what happened was, of course, his colleagues rejected them. And needless to say, they were simply crowded out. Because why then would you pay for a service when you can get it, quote unquote, free from the government? Right. So what happens here is the alternatives then are, you see, it's a false dichotomy because they say, well, either we have social security and all of these safety nets for people and we need a government for that, or the poor will starve. And they go, well, curiously enough, <laughs> before ever the government got involved in welfare, welfare was already provided by people for themselves in this way, effectively and efficiently. And indeed, in many other ways, more responsibly, because they treated people like adults. And indeed, in many cases, the people who are members of these societies took turns governing the society and taking care of it and looking after it. So they learned responsibility and administrative skills. And we're not talking about two or 300 people. We're talking about groups with 60,000 or 100,000 people in them. And many of them, for women, from for different, say, racial groups, for example, when you would have had these kinds of divisions, for men, for working men, some specifically related to certain kinds of industries and so on, a whole mosaic of these societies, and they've gone down the memory hole. So at the end of my paper, which I admit it has a provocative title, (laughs) I have a list of about six or seven or eight um, items, books, most of which are available on PDF online, and people can actually, and so on. So begin to see that these things can be provided. But so when it comes to the question, like, who will build the roads? The answer is, well, the same people who built the toll roads when the main roads were simply mud, and the same people who built the railways, and the same people who built the canals, and the same people who paid for the lighthouses. <laughs> we do it ourselves. I often had this vision of sort of some Neanderthal standing on the side of a Swiss valley about 50,000 years ago and looking over at some desirable entity at the other uh, side of the thing and saying, my gosh, if only there were a road that could get across, who will build the road? Well, you know what he did? He did what everybody else did. He walked across. And if it was there and there was lots of transport before you knew it, you had a road. So yeah, all of these things can be dealt with. But I found it very interesting that the one that really gets people excited up on their moral high horse is not the law, justice, and security. That's the most important in some ways in itself. But the most important to most people is what will happen to the poor. 
And if you shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, we'll have charity, they say, oh, well, we can't rely on charity. And I say, well, hang on a second. First of all, in a libertarian world, you won't be paying a third of your income or more to the government, so you'd have more money to dispose of it. It's already the case that people who have lots of their income taken from them by the government and engage in charitable undertakings anyway. You will also have many fewer poor people because people won't have, there won't be licensing arrangements for people to work. Anybody, almost anybody, will be capable of doing something to make some kind of income. So you will have much more money available to people and you have much fewer people who are in desperate need. And also you will have the voluntary societies that we've had before, which have been shown over the period, not just of 10, 15, 20 or 50 years, but over hundreds of years to work. So that's the kind of answer I gave to my <laughs> skeptical that's a, that, that's, a <laughs> that's a terrific answer. I love it. Of course, we encourage listeners to read Dr. Casey's excellent article, Examining the Incoherence of Political Representation, and to consider its significant implications. Don't fail to check out his other work, including his book, Libertarian Anarchy, all linked in the show notes. Dr. Casey, thanks so much for joining us and discussing your article with us. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.